Hi guys, warmest greetings and welcomes to yet another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales-based true crime show that seeks out and recounts those unfamiliar, often obscure or long-forgotten crimes from all over the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these tales is myself as ever, Paul, the host, creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, where once again it's great to have you guys joining me for the episode, and I hope that as you do, each of you fantastic folks are all good and well. So firstly, exciting news this week from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast camp is I'm very pleased to say I shall be appearing as an exhibitor at this year's UK True Crime Convention in London's Ravensbourne University on June the 27th. Now it's been organised by Georgie and Kate who are the hosts of the fantastic UK True Crime podcast Nothing Rhymes With Murder. It's going to be a brilliant bash with exhibitors, panel discussions, live shows and many of your favourite podcasters will be in attendance. Ben and Rosie from They Walk Among Us will be there, Mike from Murder Mile will be, Sinead from Men's Rear, producer from Case File Mike Migas, plus others to be announced soon. If you head over to UKTrueCrimeCon.com you can find out more details there as well as be able to get your tickets. It's an absolute pleasure to be part of something like this, alongside shows of such great calibre as I've mentioned, and I look forward to seeing some of you guys there. Please do come and say hi. Thanks also to everyone for the feedback I've received concerning the previous episode of the show, The Puppet. Now, it's a pretty unreal tale that one was, wasn't it? Eh? A bit, bit kinky, you know. I was originally considering it for a Patreon episode, and I didn't have any intention of covering that one this series but it shuffled its way into one for the regular show. Don't ask me how these things happen. As I've said before, the cases for the episodes almost choose themselves, the same as the Patreon ones do. On the subject of Patreon, I shall be shortly working on this month's bonus episode for its release in a couple of weeks. I do have a couple of ideas and I've just narrowed it down to the one I'm going to do. So if you want to be in the driving seat to hear it when it drops you got more chance of catching Greta Thunberg fly-tipping than finding it hard to do. You just use the link in the episode show notes as ever, or just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, complete with a podcast suffix on there. For less than the cost of a pint each month, you can be like both the returning and the new supporters this week who get my utmost thanks. That's namely Eva Doggan, Jamie Ebsery, Bryony Dyer, Cecily Lorenz and Charlotte Roberts and like these guys you can be listening in to tales such as Murder in Lincoln, Operation Magnesium, Obsession by the Sea or the Portsmouth Casanova murder just to name a couple. There's a good full series worth up there already with another episode for subscribers added each month. So before we crack on with this week's episode here's a short word from this week's kind sponsor of the show author Kathy Reichs and a new book, A Conspiracy of Bones. Now when you aren't head deep in true crime, do you like a bit of forensic detective fiction? If it's a favourite genre like it is for me, then you're going to love the latest book from number one New York Times best-selling crime author Kathy Reichs, A Conspiracy of Bones, which is available now from Simon & Schuster Publishers. Did you like the long-running TV procedural series Bones? Then if you were, if you were a fan, then you may know that Kathy's books are the basis for the show, and the latest offering in her Temperance Brennan series, Conspiracy of Bones, 
follows straight-talking forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan as she finds herself mixed up in a gruesome and chilling case involving a body with no hands or no face. And what's its connection to the decade-old case of a missing child? Why did the dead man have Temperance's cell phone number? Kathy's kept fans gripped with the Temperance Brennan series for years, and her latest offering is no different. Brace yourself for a shocking few twists with a conspiracy of bones, because after all, everybody's got some secrets, and the more Temperance uncovers, the darker and more twisted the picture becomes. A Conspiracy of Bones is available now from Simon & Schuster Publishing in hardback, ebook, and what I personally love myself, audiobook form. Grab your copy now from Amazon or from all good supermarkets and high street bookstores. So, next episode here on the show, we begin this series' multi-episode arc. And now it's a bit of a celebrated case, the one I'm going to do is. It's one, surprisingly, I haven't come across covered too much, really. And definitely, I think, one that needs a multi-episode look at to do it justice. But this week on the show is one of those times when I hand over the writing duties to somebody else. And I'm pleased to announce that, once again, friend of the show Julia Crane has stepped in to assist. After the success of the episodes Julia wrote for the show last series, Your Friendly Neighbourhood Frankenstein and The Feathers and the Golden Flute, she kindly got in touch with me once again to suggest yet another case she'd be interested in researching and writing up. Now Julia's episodes have been two of my favourites since I began doing the show, especially The Feathers and the Flute. I thought that was fabulous, so I was always more than happy to have her to do so. If you haven't heard either of the episodes yet, by the way, please take some time and listen to them because they're such great tales, they really are. And the case that she'd suggested for her next penned one, well, I was more than enthusiastic about it because it was one that I'd long considered to cover myself. And that's the case I'll be bringing to you this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. There will be the traditional listener written episode before the end of this series is done, of course. But this week... Julia's proper deep-dived once again into something selected, researched and written it up, and I absolutely love hosting these from her. I like her style, and if I had a hat on, I'd be tipping it to a choicer case. I said many times before, I'm a big believer in paying stuff forward, and I'm always glad to give the same opportunity to somebody as Adam over at UK True Crime gave me a few years back, which led to The Enthusiast. The vast majority of the episode this week is as ever Julia's own research and her own writing. I've only added little to the case. I may have swapped the context of some of it around and added a few bits in purely to suit my own narrative style, but that's about it. The rest is Julia's. Now, the Monday and Tuesday of 8th and 9th of July 1996, if you were alive back then, were both dark days for Britain because they were days in which two horrific attacks occurred respectively, both of which shocked the nation. The one that'll be more prominent in the public mind, the latter of these attacks, took place on Tuesday the 9th of July and happened in Chillingdon in Kent when Dr Lynn Russell and her daughters, six-year-old Megan and nine-year-old Josie, were out walking their family dog Lucy when they were ambushed, tied up, blindfolded and viciously attacked with a hammer. Tragically, Lynn and Megan died in the attack, along with the family dog Lucy. However, against all odds, Josie survived. Now, as well as being horrific, it's a controversial crime this one is as well. 
The man convicted of the crime, Michael Stone, has consistently professed his innocence, with serial killer Levi Belfield being repeatedly tied to the crime and suggested as the actual perpetrator. For anyone who's interested in learning more about the Chillingdon murders, because to date it's not one that we've covered here on the show, it has been covered by Bethan and Mark over on Seeing Red, so you can head over to them for a listen in. And you never know, Chillingdon may be one we visit at a future date here on The Enthusiast. Watch this space. But the tale that we should be looking at today is the former of the two attacks that occurred just the day before the Chillingdon murders, Monday the 8th of July 1996. Again, it's a truly horrific and disturbing crime. Again, it also involves violence against women and children, but taking place across the UK, some 200 miles from Chillingdon, at a school in the city of Wolverhampton in the UK area of the West Midlands. The scene of the attack was of all places a nursery playground, amidst an end-of-term picnic serving the purpose of welcoming new preschool nursery starters for the following term. And the events that took place were so horrific that the perpetrator, who we shall meet shortly of course, was later convicted of seven counts of attempted murder and sent to a secure hospital. It was a despicable life-changing crime for several, made even worse when you learn that the youngest of the victims was just three years old at the time. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events involving children that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as always whilst listening. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts this week, and once again pleased to have handed over the writing reins to Julia Crane for an episode entitled Horror at the Teddy Bear's Picnic. St Luke's Church of England Aided Primary School is located in the residential Brackenhall area of the city of Wolverhampton in the West Midlands, which is a multicultural area and metropolitan borough. Wolverhampton has always been an area of high industry, with its economy having developed from the woollen trade, coal mining and steel production, and in the 1920s, it was the first place in the UK to introduce automated traffic lights, top wiki stat of the week there. Now whenever I've been there, I've always enjoyed it. I've had times meeting up there with friends, I've been to several gigs at the Civic Hall there, Yet in 2009, it was, and perhaps harshly this is, I thought, voted by the Lonely Planet Guide as being the fifth worst city on the planet. I do think that's quite overly harsh, really. Famous people associated with Wolverhampton include the actress, writer and comedian Mira Sayal, co-founder of Where to Get Your Cheapo Sex Toys From, Poundland, David Dodd, Victim of the second of the double event in the Jack the Ripper murders, Catherine Eddowes. Apparently, the world's most prolific crossword compiler, Roger Squires. How you become so prolific in that, I don't know. And the first person ever to win a million pounds on the British version of TV quiz show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? No, not the cheating major, but boffin and current egghead, Judith Keppel. St. Luke's School is today a larger-than-average primary school catering for children aged between 3 and 11 years of age, but it used to be two separate schools, an infant's and a junior school, which merged together in the year 2000 to make the St. Luke's Church of England school today. 
Although the school's catchment area covers an area of Wolverhampton with a high level of social and financial disadvantage, despite these issues, Ofsted inspections of the school that have taken place over the years describe it consistently as providing a good education for the children in its care, and the ethos of the school is consistently described as being warm, promoting a nurturing, encouraging and positive atmosphere, and with a good sense of community. In keeping with these values, St Luke's has also been awarded School of Sanctuary status. There are about 200 schools of sanctuary throughout the UK, and they are each given this award when its staff and pupils agree to work together to create a place of safety and inclusion for all who may need it. Back in 1996, however, St Luke's Infant School, as it then was, needed to provide safety and sanctuary for its children and parents in a way that nobody could have previously imagined. The events that occurred there changed the lives of all of those who were involved, due to both their physical injuries and because of the emotional scars that were left on those who were witness to what occurred that day. The events were also especially chilling because they happened just four months after the attack which took place in March 1996 on Dunblane Primary School when Thomas Hamilton shot 16 children and a teacher before committing suicide. This is an event that surely needs no introduction whatsoever here in the UK. It's one that's been covered by several podcasts, including again Seeing Red, Skinwalker, and it's even had the men's rear treatment from Sinead, to name just a couple. Now people all over the country were sickened by the Dunblane attack, but for those working in education, it felt particularly personal. It was unthinkable that a primary school classroom, which is meant to be a safe and innocent place, could be touched by the horrors of gun violence in the way that occurred. Before Dunblane, whilst there'd been attacks on primary schools in other countries, there'd been no direct attacks on primary schools recorded in the UK, other than through external events such as schools that were affected by bombings during the Second World War. Dunblane changed the way that people thought about security in schools. Before Dunblane, UK schools were fairly open places without much thought being given to security during the school day. But after Dunblane, this was transformed and the government published new guidelines about steps that schools should take to safeguard their pupils and staff alike. All UK schools had risk assessments undertaken and even those that were identified as being low risk as a result of these were advised to consider installing intruder alarms and to rethink their existing procedures for allowing visitors onto site. Those schools that were considered to be high risk were also advised to revisit their procedures, but additionally to alarm systems, they were told to consider adding to the physical security on the school site, such as putting bars on windows and installing CCTV, as well as giving personal alarms to teachers and, if necessary, employing security guards. However, Mr Colin Campbell QC, addressing the judicial inquiry into the Dunblane massacre on the 8th of July 1996, said that despite these measures, I quote, it is unrealistic to expect that the risk of a violent intruder gaining access to a school can be eliminated. All that can be done is to take whatever measures are reasonably practicable. He also, grimly prophetically it was to transpire, said that a similar attack, again I quote, will happen again at any time unless decisive action is taken. 
It was prophetical because what Colin Campbell could not know was that at that very time he made this statement whilst addressing the inquiry just after 3pm on the 8th of July 1996 that another school was about to be under attack and this was St Luke's in Wolverhampton. On that morning of Monday the 8th of July, the day had started as normal for school staff. The academic year was drawing to a close and with term due to end on the 19th of July, everyone was getting ready for the final push that marks the end of the school year, with concerts being produced, school reports being written and records being organised for children who were moving up a level to their next classes or perhaps the next schools. Preparations had also started for the new intake of children who were going to be joining the school's nursery from the September term of that year. Now this is always a nerve-wracking time, I'm sure, both for the parents of these very young children, who are only three and four years old, of being separated from them for the first time, and vice versa for the children as well. St Luke's did its best to make sure that these children and their parents would be prepared for the start of the autumn term, even before the previous school year had ended. The way St Luke's had chosen to welcome the new intake of children to the nursery for that September was to organise a teddy bears picnic that they were invited to attend, and the staff in the nursery class, teacher Dorothy Hawes and nursery nurse Lisa Potts, got to work on the preparations. An invitation was made for each child who would be upcoming to attend this teddy bears picnic, and they were sent home to them addressed to their parents. With the theme being teddy bears, everything was arranged around a bear theme. With all the accessories, including the tablecloths and napkins, everything had teddy bears on them. The nursery staff had fantastic fun planning the day and had made all the preparations, including organising the food, balloons, face paints and making sure that they were teddy bears galore. In other words, trying to make the day as perfect as possible to help the new children get excited, have them start looking forward towards joining the nursery. Two picnics were planned for the 8th of July then, one for the group of children that would be attending nursery in the mornings and one for the children that would be attending in the afternoons. The staff knew it would be a busy day with lots of very young children who may never have been away from their parents before, so it was all hands on deck and nursery nurse Lisa Potts even got her own mother Glenys and her friend Pam to help out during the morning's picnic session to make sure that the day would run smoothly. What nobody could know was that whilst the school staff were planning and setting up the picnics for the children, in a nearby block of flats, someone else had also been planning something that involved the children at the school. Living alone on the sixth floor of Villiers House, a ten-storey block of council flats in Villiers Road, just across the road from St Luke's School, was Horat Irving Campbell a 32-year-old man known in the local area as Izzy. On the night of Sunday the 7th of July, when the nursery staff at St Luke's were at home making sure they had all the balloons and face paints etc. ready to take into school in the morning, in a small converted workroom in his flat, Campbell was constructing two homemade flamethrowers using foam sponges and metal tubing. He stayed up into the early hours working on these, which when completed, he placed into a battered Nike sports holdall. From a container, he then filled a fairy liquid washing up liquid bottle full of petrol, which he also placed into the bag, 
and then selecting an object, he used a permanent marker to inscribe a crude swastika symbol on it, alongside the wording, You filthy devils, 666 horns devil, and 666 marks the devil. Satisfied with his handiwork, he placed the object into the sports hold all and zipped it up. The item he had just inscribed these chilling markings on was a machete that measured 23 inches from tip to base. The first picnic at St. Luke's that morning passed without any incident, and having had a morning of fun, a happy group of children who were now presumably looking forward to starting nursery that September went home with their parents and carers. For the nursery staff, however, their work continued as it was time to repeat the picnic for the afternoon group of children. The tables were wiped down, fresh balloons were blown up, and fresh party food and cakes were taken out of their boxes and wrapping. The volunteers from that morning, including Glennis Potts and Lisa's friend Pam, had left the school at lunchtime due to their own work commitments, but a couple of the local mums, one of whom was nine months pregnant, came in to help out, as well as a volunteer who was considering a future career as a nursery nurse. So it was up to this group of adults to look after the afternoon group of children and to make everything run as smoothly as possible. For most of the afternoon, everything went as planned and the atmosphere was once again happy and relaxed. The children arrived, games were played, sandwiches and cake were consumed, everybody seemed to be enjoying themselves. Whilst this was going on, however, across the road, Horrock Campbell's planning and his paranoia was rapidly reaching its peak. With the children happily playing nearby, Campbell was in his flat preparing himself for the horror that he had in mind, dressing himself in a tweed deerstalker hat, which he'd customised by fashioning it with a stormtrooper-like chin strap and adding two wood screws or iron bolts, depending on differing sources, poking out through the top to stick out like horns. He'd also marked in pen a crude, hand-drawn black Nazi iron cross on the side. It was later to tell police it was to give him courage. Slinging his battered Nike hold all over his shoulder, shortly after 3pm, he left his Villiers Road flat and walked a short distance across to the school where he placed himself in the bushes outside the fence for a minute so that he could see what was going on. What he saw before him was a group of nursery staff and small children who were just finishing up their afternoon's picnic and were at that moment playing games in the sunshine. The parents were just starting to arrive at the school to collect their children and were waiting in the sunshine by the school gates. From 11 minutes past three that afternoon, in the eight minutes that followed Campbell's arrival at the school, and what the BBC later quite rightly described as being a frenzied attack, the lives of several were left scarred both physically and mentally. Four adults and three children were left severely injured, having been attacked by Horrock Campbell. And we shall continue with the episode following a short word about this week's show sponsor, ExpressVPN. Okay, these days where everything is online, privacy and security is paramount, which is why we use virtual private networks. But what I was introduced to recently, a fabulous little tip, is that VPNs can be used to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. So think about the vast number of TV and film libraries that you can search through with that. 
you'll have square eyes, won't you? By using the unique link expressvpn.com forward slash true crime, the show sponsors are offering true crime enthusiast podcast listeners an extra three months of ExpressVPN free. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want streaming sites to think that you're located. There are almost a hundred different countries that you can choose from, so just think about all of the different Netflix libraries that you can go through. And it's not just limited to Netflix. ExpressVPN works with pretty much any streaming service from Hulu to Spotify, and I use it myself to watch stuff because it's fast, it doesn't buffer or lag, you can stream it in high definition no problem, and it's compatible with all range of devices, from phones to smart TVs. You can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen, wherever you are, it doesn't matter. Find, just find the stuff you want to watch, fire up the VPN app, change your location to the host country, refresh your streaming provider, boom, that's all there is to it. So to support the show, to watch what you want from wherever you want, and to protect yourself online to bat with three months free, head over to expressvpn.com forward slash true crime. We shall now continue with horror at the teddy bear's picnic. One parent at the school that afternoon, Bala Baines, later described the onset of the terrifying scene that was to unfold. Bala was waiting to collect his son, Amar, who was just six, and niece, Kiran, who was just five, when he saw a man carrying a holdall loitering in nearby bushes. Bala described the scene as follows. I thought he was a litter collector, then I saw him jump over the school wall and reach into his bag. He pulled out a huge machete. I didn't know what to do, but I called police on my mobile phone. He just walked straight towards one of the mothers and slashed at her head. She didn't even see him coming. She just went down and I don't think she moved. The guy jumped over a little three-foot fence where the kids' play area is and just started hacking at anybody and everybody. I kept close to him and eventually got his attention by shouting, Come on, get me, you bastard. He looked at me and moved towards me smiling. He tried to slash me with a knife, but I jumped back and he missed. Then he just turned and walked away. He cut one more child before he finally left. He didn't even look as if he was panicking. He was very calm. Can you imagine how shocking and frightening that must have been in a children's playground of all places? Campbell's first victim was a mother called Wendy Wellington. She was inside the schoolyard with her youngest son, waiting to pick up her other son, when at 12 minutes past three, Campbell, who as we said had leapt over the school wall and removed his fearsome looking machete from his sports bag, sprung at Wendy, knocking her to the floor and slashing at her with a machete as she lay over her youngest child to protect him. Two other mothers in the yard Azra Rafiq and Sarinda Chopra, who were looking on in horror at what was unfolding, tried to intervene and stop Campbell attacking the injured Wendy, but then realising he was turning his attentions towards the school, tried to block him from heading towards the nursery playground. This frustrated Campbell further, who in turn savagely slashed at Azra and Sarinda. They were left severely injured from these wounds, and covered in blood, 
they could only watch in shock and horror as Campbell jumped over the three-foot-high green fence into the nursery's play area where the children were starting to go inside after the end of the picnic. Now in accounts of the attack that followed, Campbell was described as baring his teeth in anger, yet laughing maniacally as he swung the machete at the children. Just once again, try to imagine how frightening that must have been. A man with a horned hat and a large machete, covered in other people's blood, running towards you and laughing maniacally as he does. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? It's the proper stuff of nightmares, that, isn't it? In the direct line of his assault were three of these nursery children, Rena Chopra and Francesca Quintine, who were both aged just four years old, and Ahmed Puvez, aged just three. These three owe their lives today to one person, so it's here that we welcome the hero of the hour properly to the tale, and the person whose name is today synonymous with the attack at St. Luke's, 21-year-old nursery nurse, Lisa Potts. From an early age, Lisa had always known that she'd wanted to work with children. It was in her caring nature. She had a normal and happy childhood, filled with friends and family. She enjoyed dancing, going to brownies, and helping her mum to run the local Sunday school. As she got older, she became a brownie leader. She got herself a Saturday job, and was an in-demand babysitter. And after a GCSE examinations, Lisa was offered a place at Walsall College to study for a nursery nurse examination board qualification. After she completed this in 1994, Lisa worked at first in a private nursery, but her dream was always to work in a school, which she couldn't do without gaining more experience. Prompted by her Aunt Pamela, she contacted Denise Bennett, head teacher at St Luke's Infant School, to see whether she could volunteer there, hoping this would give her some experience of working in a school so she could gain future employment at a school nursery. After meeting Lisa, Denise Bennett was delighted to have such a committed person volunteering to work in a school and agreed to Lisa helping out in the reception and year one classes. This experience in turn helped Lisa, who was later offered a part-time paid job in another school. However, She'd loved volunteering at St. Luke's and had developed so much of an affinity with there that she continued volunteering there every afternoon after working in her other school in the mornings. It was while she was volunteering at St. Luke's that Lisa heard the exciting news that the school had received funding to set up their own nursery department and as Lisa was so well regarded by the staff and children alike, Denise Bennett asked Lisa to become St. Luke's Nursery's full-time paid nursery nurse. Lisa didn't think twice about accepting what was a dream job in the place she loved, and having accepted the position, immediately got stuck into a new role, helping out with planning the new nursery with nursery teacher Dorothy Hawes, and assisting with cleaning, decorating and organising toys for the children. She started her new job as a full-time permanent member of staff in September 1995 and she absolutely loved it. She got to know the children and the parents very well and the children also loved her. Having just turned 21 that previous March, at the time of the attack, Lisa had the world at her feet. She had a loving family, a boyfriend of five years, lots of friends and an active social life. For aside from her busy role at the nursery, 
She also taught aerobics in her spare time, and as a committed Christian, Lisa was also heavily involved in the church, helping to run camps and church groups for children. In fact, just the weekend before the attack, she'd been away running a weekend church camp, enjoying the long summer days and all of the outdoor activities that had been organised. Barely stopping for a breather in life, little did Lisa know that before the end of the school year, a stable and happy existence would be rocked and marred forever by violence, because that was exactly what happened when she was confronted by Horrick Campbell and his machete on that July afternoon. With Campbell heading towards the children, Lisa didn't think for a second about her own safety, her only concern was for the children in her care. Later, when she was recalling the scene, Lisa remembered little about her own pain and injuries, but remembered everything about the fear of the children who were present. In her own words, I was clearing up and putting things into a basket, and I saw a man running from the corner of the fence. He went to attack one of the mums who was walking to collect a kid from the infants. He was carrying a machete. He came to the mum and basically belted her over the head. She was lying on the floor and then I heard Miss Hollis say, Quick, grab some of the children. I started running with them. The man leapt over the fence and attacked one of the other mums, Sarinda Chopra. He came again with it and it went down on her head. It was crazy from then on. Children were holding onto my skirt and some of them went underneath. They were hiding with fright. I started running with the children to try and get into the nursery door, but before I knew it, the man came at me with the machete. As I started to run in, he lashed out at Francesca, straight across the face. The face just opened. Campbell had struck the four-year-old girl so hard with the machete, so violently, that he sliced off her left ear, tore open her face from ear to mouth, and broke her jaw. A four-year-old girl. I'll just let that sink in somewhat. With Campbell attacking Lisa and Francesca, there was mayhem, with all the children trying to run away and staff in a state of utter shock, trying to get the children to safety. Meanwhile, more parents were arriving at the school to collect their children and were confronted with three injured mothers and the gradual realisation that there was an attack going on in the school. Meanwhile, Campbell by now had three-year-old Ahmed Pervez and his sister Mariam in his sights as his next victims. Mariam managed to run to safety, but Ahmed tripped as he was fleeing and Campbell struck him across the head savagely with a machete, fracturing his skull. Leaving the other children in the safety of the classroom, Lisa ran over and picked up the little boy before he could be injured further. Campbell then attacked both Ahmed and Lisa again, this time hitting Ahmed's arm a vicious blow and Lisa's head, with Lisa all the time trying to shield the boy from Campbell's attack. In something that resembled a horror film, Lisa recalled that as she finally got all the children into the nursery, she tried to pull the door to the building shut, but Campbell put his foot in the way, all the time slashing at Lisa with the machete. At this point, she was trapped in an area of the nursery with a group of six children. Thinking quickly, 
she realised that if she went through the door to the neighbouring reception class to try to flee through there, Campbell would follow her, and then this would put at risk the lives of 25 other school children who were in that classroom. Instead, Lisa made the small group of children run in front of her towards the school's office area, all the time bravely shielding them with their own body, and at this time, Campbell struck her again, this time inflicting savage blows to her left arm and the back of her head, which nearly floored her. Yet powered by pure adrenaline, Lisa still managed to run, even leaping over a large water tray whilst carrying two of the children and with her own left arm half-severed. Three-year-old Ahmed, who was quiet and still at this time, was not able to run, but he was hidden from view under a pile of dressing-up clothing and remained there while Lisa tried to escape with the others. Now it transpired that Lisa made the right choice in running towards the office, as she later found that had she tried to get into the reception class, that aware of the screams from outside and knowing there was a madman attacking children with a machete, the teacher in the next room was clinging onto the door handle for dear life to protect her class from Campbell. If Lisa had tried to open the door, her own colleague would have been pulling against her and would have been faced with the choice of saving Lisa and her group of children or risking the lives of them plus all of the other 25 children who were all in the reception class. She would have been a sitting duck for the deranged Campbell. Believing that Campbell was still chasing her, Lisa ran for her life and for the lives of the children that were with her, but glancing back, she realised that Campbell had abandoned his attack and had left the building, meaning that she and the other children were finally safe. It was only then, when they were safe, that Lisa realised that she was covered in blood and it dawned upon her just how badly she had been injured. Lisa Potts had been slashed six times in all, including the blow which had nearly severed her arm, several deep slashes to her back and a blow to her head which had struck so deep it had chipped her skull. Parents and children alike were now screaming at the sight of Lisa's terrible injuries and as colleagues ushered her to a side room, they attempted to stem the bleeding whilst they waited for the emergency services to arrive. Unfounded rumours started that the attacker was still in the building and had a gun, which added to the panic, and at the same time, Ahmed's mother ran in, holding the unconscious figure of the little boy in her arms. When she saw this, Lisa believed that Ahmed was dead, and in a state of severe shock, tearfully apologised to his mum, saying that she'd done everything that she possibly could to save him. Meanwhile, outside the school, the group of parents who'd witnessed the events unfolding were trying to do what they could to help or to keep themselves safe. Some of them had mobile phones and dialed 999, others hid in the outdoor toy shed, and others had attempted to intercept Campbell, as we've said, as he tried to get into the school building. They were unsuccessful in this, and Campbell had finished his attack before finally fleeing the scene. One of the parents chased Campbell back towards Villiers Road and towards the flats where he lived. However, in all of the confusion, Campbell managed to disappear. Within minutes, upwards of 30 police officers and a trained police negotiator had arrived at St Luke's, along with police dog handlers, 
and a search began of the immediate area, including Villiers' house, but without success. Campbell, meanwhile, who had evaded police by hiding in a cupboard on the sixth floor, had changed his clothes and had then started two separate fires within the building to add to the confusion before making his way up to the roof, a vantage point where he could watch the police and paramedic activity unfold at the scene of his carnage. Adding to the confusion, like it doesn't sound like there was already enough of it there that day or what, one man who fitted the description of the suspect was almost immediately arrested and taken away by police. However, was soon ruled out and released. This was not Horrock Campbell, who remained at large, and so the search continued. Immediately after the attack, the seven victims who had been injured by Campbell were taken by the West Midlands Ambulance Service to Wolverhampton's New Cross Hospital, where Paul Shields, an executive from New Cross, that evening described one adult and one child to be in a serious condition. This was Lisa Potts and three-year-old Ahmed Pivaz, who miraculously survived the attack and who was also its youngest victim. After initially being taken to New Cross Hospital, Ahmed had to be then transferred to Birmingham Children's Hospital. Such were his injuries. These included a fractured skull and elbow, slashes to his thigh and suspected brain damage, with doctors reporting that it was too early to tell if it would be permanent or not. Four-year-old Rena Chopra, who had suffered deep cuts to her face, and four-year-old Francesca Quintine, whose jaw was fractured, her face slashed and ear severed, were both reported to be in a stable condition. Rena's mother Sarinda was one of the parents who'd been injured by Campbell at the start of the attack, and she was also taken to the same hospital. The other woman, Azar Rasik, who along with Sarinda had tried to prevent Campbell from entering the school grounds was also admitted, along with a third parent, Wendy Wellington, who had been the first to be attacked. As Villiers' house was sealed off, police soon issued details of the person they wished to speak to in connection with the attack, 32-year-old Horrit Irving Campbell, who lived on the sixth floor and who had been identified by locals. As a manhunt was launched for him, with the building completely sealed off, a second methodical search of the tower block began. Yet it was not until the following evening that Campbell was located, hidden in a dry riser cupboard on the stairwell on the ninth floor of Villiers' house, next to the rubbish chute. Conflicting reports concerning the case claim that in some sources that it was actually a security guard at the building who discovered Campbell, while others say it was one of the officers involved in the large-scale police presence that was hunting for him. Regardless of who it was, when he was discovered hidden in the cupboard, Campbell reportedly surrendered without any fuss whatsoever, first being asked to throw out any weapons he had on his person. Out of the cupboard came an 8-inch kitchen knife that had been sharpened to a wicked point, followed by a 6-inch yellow-handled flat-headed screwdriver, and when Campbell had been arrested and detained, he led police to an empty flat on the ninth floor of the block, where his 23-inch machete had been hidden behind a sink in the bathroom. He was taken downstairs, and under cover of a blue blanket, past the gathered crowd, shortly after 7.30pm was placed into a police escort and taken to Wolverhampton's Bilson Street Police Station. 
for the crowd gathered at the cordon made up of shocked locals with their frustration having mounted almost a fever pitch. It was at least a sign that the investigation was moving in some form. Horror such as this is the kind of thing that creates lynch bobs, isn't it? And the crowd were getting more and more angry as the hours had ticked by, watching the police searching, but with no result. One local resident, Daljinder Singh, told the gathered press, People are very angry about what has happened, and there was a chance they would have taken matters into their own hands if they'd not seen any developments. Another, Darren Bird, said, People will just be relieved they finally brought someone out. They've been searching all this time, and I'm just glad something has happened. Parents from Dunblane, still in shock from their own atrocity only a few months previously, were stunned by news of the attack. The feelings were summed up by a local councillor, Arthur Ironside, who said, We are all sickened by this atrocity. No one can understand how anyone can hurt little children. Our own tragedy happened just four months ago. Now every parent involved will be reliving the hell of that day and the weeks that followed. From the moment he was arrested, although he admitted the attack, through interview, Horrick Campbell never once offered any clear word of explanation or any remorse for what he'd done. The nearest he came before his trial was claiming during police interviews, I thought the children represented the devil. I had to hit them, they could just be wounded. What I did was good. I felt sorry for myself. I didn't really feel sorry for them, no. At least I'm going to prison for something worthwhile. You wouldn't know what to say to that, would you? On Friday the 12th of July 1996, Horrick Campbell appeared at Wolverhampton Magistrates Court where he was charged with seven counts of attempted murder. He spoke only to confirm his name and address and was remanded in custody to await trial sent to Ashworth High Security Psychiatric Hospital in McGull in Merseyside. Whilst he was taken here, Lisa Potts and the other victims of Campbell's attack were meanwhile left seriously injured and with trying to pick up the pieces of their lives after what had happened. With Campbell now under lock and key, the country could try to begin to come to terms with the horror of the previous day. And the figure in the public eye the most who personified the horror? Lisa Potts, the most severely injured in the attack. Denise Bennett, the school's headteacher, herself still in deep shock, had made a statement to the press saying, The speed and control with which my staff acted, together with parents, certainly saved many lives. It was a horrendous scene, the likes of which I hope I will never see again. But out of all of the St. Luke's staff, one person shone overall. There can't have been a person reading newspaper accounts of what had happened the previous day who didn't shudder at the catalogue of injuries received by Lisa Potts and marvel at the young woman's heroism. As we mentioned before, She'd been sliced with Campbell's machete six times, resulting in massive lacerations to her back and arms, the left of which was almost severed, and a blow to her head which was so deep it had chipped her skull. Lisa required four hours of surgery on the evening of the attack, as a result of four severed tendons in her left arm, a severed tendon in her right hand, a fractured left arm which required a plate inserted, the wound to her chipped skull, 
and two lacerations to her back, one narrowly missing her spine. When she awoke the next morning, her arms were elevated in two casts and she was reliant on nursing staff and family members doing everything for her. As well as Lisa's loved ones and friends who'd rushed straight to the hospital as soon as they heard the news, the press also swarmed here and Lisa became headline news. Gifts and cards from well-wishers also soon flooded the hospital and the school and Lisa became known as the Angel of St. Luke's. The media coverage escalated and with the press clamouring to speak to her, one reporter even posed as a doctor to try and see Lisa. As a result of all this media attention, Lisa was asked to give an interview, which she did some days later from her hospital room. She was to remain in hospital for nine days, where she was visited by the police, as well as various therapists, as she needed physio and occupational therapy, as well as support from a clinical psychologist and victim support. After she got home, her mum and friends had to continue to help her with eating, dressing and washing, and once the casts came off her arms, Lisa had to learn to use her hands again, returning to hospital for numerous operations and therapies to help her regain as much function and mobility as possible. Following the attack then, as we've said, Lisa was inundated by the press. She had no media training and didn't ask for any payment for the interviews, as it wasn't in her nature to even consider making money out of such horror. She became a well-known figure, appearing on several television shows and charity appeals, and met a whole list of A to Z rated celebrities, from Princess Diana and former Prime Ministers John Major and Tony Blair, right through to Jet from Gladiators, who back in the day I would never have minded being caught on the rings by, and she even met William Roach, who is only top shagger Ken Barlow himself, who Lisa took part in a promotional film for Lancashire Police, promoting security in schools. I would have thought promoting safe sex would have been a bit more fitting for Ken Barlow, but what do I know? Whilst all this was going on, over the following months as Lisa worked on her recovery and tried to get her life back to normal, she was also the recipient of a number of awards to recognise her courage, including the Celebrities Guild Unsung Hero Award that was presented to her by Jill Dando at the Dorchester Hotel in London but the price of the trauma she had suffered following the attack took its toll upon Lisa, and she split with her long-term boyfriend, Mark. She also became increasingly aware that certain things would trigger a peak in her anxiety levels, be it a sudden noise, police sirens, and on one occasion, a taxi driver who came to collect her, who was wearing a trilby hat. Lisa was hypervigilant in groups of people, and started having flashbacks to the attack, eventually being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Meanwhile, the person responsible for such horror was secured away, awaiting trial. So who was Horrit Campbell, and what on earth possesses someone to commit such an atrocity? He'd been born in Wolverhampton in 1964 to devout Christian West Indian parents Isaac and Rebecca Campbell and for the previous 13 years had lived alone in a sixth floor flat in Villiers house. Campbell had had a normal upbringing although his parents separated in the late 1980s and his mother eventually returned to the West Indies where she was to pass away in 1992. 
although his elderly father had remained living in the Wolverhampton area. An unremarkable pupil at Colton Hill Secondary School, where he was remembered as being a loner with a fleeting interest in astronomy, Campbell left here with no qualifications in 1984. He eventually worked for a short time as a trainee welder at a Wolverhampton Engineering Works before spending the remainder of the 1980s working as a painter and decorator. But it was about this time that Campbell, albeit not much, began to come out of his shell. He grew his hair into dreadlocks, adopted the Rastafarian culture and began using cannabis regularly. Yet although he was known around the local area as Izzy, he very much still remained a loner, with his only friend being described as his mother, Rebecca. Regulars of his local pub, which was called the Glassy, remember Campbell as being a solitary figure who, on the occasions when he would visit the pub, would brood alone, buying and nursing a single drink, if he hadn't already tried stealing the drinks and, or cigarettes of others when they visited the toilet. By the early 1990s, he was unemployed, and depending on which press accounts you read, the 5 foot 9 inch slim bearded Campbell was either a jobless no-hoper who spent much of his time gambling, working on his beloved car, or periodically going to his local, or someone who was a bit of a misfit and a loner, but who always said hello, and who wasn't considered to be much trouble to anyone else. He was known to spend most of his time tinkering with his car, which as we've said was his pride and joy, and which he was known to borrow out to people in exchange for amounts of cannabis. But he seemed to have no work ethic as such, instead telling anyone who would listen that he dreamed of having a big gambling win that would set him up for life and get him the girlfriend and big house of his dreams. What they did not know was that Horrock Campbell was also becoming increasingly unwell with an illness that made him have auditory hallucinations and paranoid feelings that was later diagnosed as being paranoid schizophrenia. If anyone had looked deeply enough for them, the warning signs were there as well. In the late 1980s, Campbell started to believe that a ghost was dominating him and was controlling his actions, and around this time, his interests also started to become very dark. He began spending his days, when he wasn't obsessively hand-painting his car every colour under the bloody sun, Watching violent science fiction or action movies, he grew increasingly eccentric, toying with astrology, and developed obsessions with devils and the Nazis, as well as guns and firebombs. He came to police notice several times over the next few years for all manner of things, including in December 1994, when he set fire to his car when it wouldn't start, and whilst he was prosecuted here for arson with intent to endanger life, he got off with merely a fine. In late 1995, Campbell once again appeared at Wolverhampton Magistrates Court, on this occasion charged with a fray and possession of an offensive weapon after being found with a machete strapped to his leg, and this time he was sent to prison for two months. Before being sentenced, the probation report presented to the court advised that a psychiatric assessment should be conducted on Campbell as he'd reported that he was hearing voices. Campbell subsequently denied this, so it wasn't further challenged, and no such assessment was ever undertaken. The stipendary magistrate in the case at the time, Mr Ian Gillespie, much later defended his actions, saying, 
Mr. Campbell's solicitor told me that Mr. Campbell had informed him he would not cooperate with any psychiatrist. That alone would not have dissuaded me from ordering a psychiatric report. However, I was informed by a solicitor that Mr. Campbell denied having heard voices and that when he told the probation officer about the whispering voices, he had in fact been, I quote, joking around. The offences for which I was sentencing were not such as to trigger automatically the need for a psychiatric report. So, despite these convictions, Campbell was generally seen as a bit of a pathetic, harmless figure and someone who police should ideally monitor, but who was not considered to be a danger to the public. If only, eh? Released from prison, as Campbell's mental health further deteriorated, he started to become increasingly more isolated from society and he fixated upon the sounds of the school children that he could hear from his flat. He began to believe that the children were conspiring against him and that the parents of children at St Luke's were reporting him to the police for all manner of trivial offences. This paranoia was fuelled even further when he was arrested for a motoring offence and was as a result charged with driving his orange Volvo without licence, tax or insurance. With the court hearing for this offence set for August 1996, Campbell began thinking about how he could best exact his revenge against the families at the school, who he believed to be responsible for telling the police about him and facilitating him an inevitable prison sentence. With this paranoia increasing, Campbell began planning his own attack on St Luke's Infant School and he started to become obsessed with the idea of emulating mass killers including Thomas Hamilton, the Dunblane attacker, and also Martin Bryant, who had shot and killed 35 people and injured 23 others in Tasmania's Port Arthur massacre in April 1996. One measure of how disturbed Campbell was at this time was that following his arrest for the attack on St Luke's, when police searched his flat in Villiers' house, they discovered scores of press cuttings Campbell had kept about the massacres, pinned up on the walls of his flat. Next to the picture of Martin Bryant, Campbell had even drawn a love heart and a picture of Cupid's bow. Fueled by these feelings of wanting revenge, combined with his feelings of hero worship towards Hamilton and Bryant and his deepening psychosis, Campbell started to gather the things that he would need for the attack and to prepare for translating his plans into a chilling reality that came to fruition on the 8th of July 1996. Five months after the attack, on the 9th of December 1996, Horrock Campbell appeared before Mr Justice Sedley at Stafford Crown Court, charged with seven counts of attempted murder, to which he pleaded not guilty. Opening the trial, Richard Wakeley QC, prosecuting, told the court how police who searched Campbell's flat following his arrest found newspaper pictures of Thomas Hamilton and Martin Bryant pasted to his wall and beside Bryant's picture, Campbell had drawn a love heart and Cupid's bow. Questioned about these, Campbell had told police during interviews that he felt an affinity with Hamilton because he too had been outcast by society and wanted to get even for being misrepresented. He liked the pair of mass killers because they'd been victimised by society, 
just like he had. Campbell said of Hamilton's slaughter, he felt he was doing to others what they'd been doing to him. I felt victimised. I thought Hamilton was victimised. Campbell had further said he felt he'd been forced to carry out the attack to clear his name and to prepare for it had constructed an arsenal of homemade weapons in a small workroom in his flat. Mr Wakeley also told the court that Campbell had suggested to police he'd wanted to get hold of a firearm. Mr Wakeley said, There are elements of copycat here. He identified himself with Bryant and Hamilton and went out and attacked like those two. Bryant and Hamilton had been driven to indiscriminately kill, just as he felt compelled to do what he did. The court then heard the horrific story in full as it's been recounted here. No more of a powerful witness was there than the gravely injured Lisa Potts, still rebuilding her life following Campbell's actions, who even, and rather insensitively I thought this was, was given the machete wielded by Campbell and asked to describe how it had been used against her by acting out the slashing motions. The machete still carried various words and markings inscribed upon it by Campbell, including the phrases, you filthy devils, and 666 marks the devil, and the hand-drawn swastika. Following Lisa giving her evidence, Mr Justice Sedley commended her bravery, which was echoed by Mr Wakeley, who said, You may well be astonished by the courage of that young girl. She totally disregarded her own safety, but for her actions, this tragedy could have been so much worse. Following Lisa's account, the full catalogue of terrible injuries that she, the three adults and three children had received in the attack was told to the jury, although a distressed Lisa could not be in court to hear her own terrible injuries being described. Mr Wakeley also warned the jury to steal themselves before showing them graphic images of some of the wounds that had been received, including the wounds to Lisa and the savage wounds to four-year-old Francesca Quintine. Extracts of Campbell's police interviews was also read to the court, where he described his actions and reasoning. Examples of his delusional state are apparent throughout the following. It was convenient, it was near me. I went to the school to attack some people, had a bag to conceal my weapon, a machete. I saw a little girl who said, if he does it, then he does it. I took it to mean she knew why I was there. I thought it was going to look funny if I didn't go ahead and do what I'd come to do. I decided I was going to go through with what I'd planned. I jumped over the wall and attacked them. I had the machete in my hand. I thought the children represented the devil. I had to hit them. They could just be wounded. Some just ignored me at first. Then they started running. I just wanted to catch a few of them, but some took shelter inside the school building. I wanted to hit them, cut them. I didn't hit them hard with the intention of killing them. Campbell himself spent two and a half hours in the witness box during the four-day trial, explaining that the night before the attack, he had sat up into the early hours constructing two homemade flamethrowers from metal tubing and foam. His intention, he claimed, was to wet them with petrol from a washing-up liquid bottle full of fuel that he'd carried with him to the attack and to throw them, I quote, at anything. 
or because he claimed he thought the pupils at St. Luke's, children aged between three and four, were part of a conspiracy against him, maintaining that they'd verbally abused and tormented him. Campbell told the court, They hadn't done anything personally, but they had contributed to the pressures I've had by jeering at me if I walked past. They teased me the kids at school. I walked past the school and the kids would run to the fence and say racially abusive marks. They would just come out with it. They'd just say things like, I'm a loser and a failure and that. They picked on me, calling me names. They called me celibacy and words like tramp. I'm a normal person, kind, considerate and sensitive. The way I would compare it is this. I see myself having difficulties and being sort of victimised and pressurised unnecessarily. So, I think I should share that pressure with some other people and attack some people like I did. He told the court that he wanted to attack the children at St. Luke's to get back at them and hurt them. When asked if he intended to kill, Campbell replied, that was not my intention. He said, I attacked some people with the machete, just anyone, until I thought, that's enough. I couldn't hit all of them because they were running about. I felt much better. I felt relieved like a weight was off my shoulders. It was a chance to get my own back. I felt like I'm seeing justice being done. I had to help myself to sort of clear my name. Wearing a crumpled beige jacket and white open neck shirt, Campbell was then handed a rolled up piece of paper and asked to demonstrate to the court the types of blows he had inflicted on his victims. Mumbling and stuttering as he did so, Campbell swung the paper up to his head and down before moving it across his body in a side-to-side -side slashing motion. Campbell could not recall the exact sequence of the attack, but said he'd only struck most of his victims one blow as he didn't want to kill them. Referring to the multiple blows suffered by Lisa Potts as she tried to shield the 18 children in the group, Campbell said he did not realise he'd made contact with her body. Dr James Collins, a psychiatrist who'd been treating Campbell at High Security Ashworth Hospital, where he'd been held before trial, told the court that the diagnosis of Campbell was one of paranoid schizophrenia and that the auditory hallucinations and conspiracy theories were all classic symptoms of his mental illness, which had not been diagnosed before the school attack in July. He said conspiracy theories and hearing voices were both symptoms of schizophrenia and Campbell had also told him he believed someone was trying to poison him. He took overheard casual remarks as personal affronts and misinterpreted random events as a conspiracy against himself. But under cross-examination, Dr Collins said Campbell's illness did not prevent him from forming an intention, which the prosecution claimed was the intention to kill. In his closing comments, Mr Wakeley asked, was he so mad that he didn't understand the consequences of what he was doing? He said Campbell's motive was the same as that of Thomas Hamilton, to get even, and told the jury they may well decide Campbell was unbalanced at the time of the attack. But, he added, there is no suggestion he was insane in any legal sense. Ian Petty QC for the defence told the jury, he was not in his right mind. He did not know, and still does not, that he was genuinely ill and that he was hearing voices. 
voices he believed were real. He acted as he did because he desperately wanted to stop the tide of abuse and for that reason he went to the school to inflict hurt, not death. On the 9th of December 1996, the jury of six men and six women at Stafford Crown Court took less than three hours to find Horrit Campbell guilty, unanimously, on all counts of attempted murder. Campbell stood impassively as Mr Justice Sedley ordered him to be detained at Ashworth High Security Hospital for 12 weeks, pending the outcome of a further pre-sentencing psychiatric report, telling him, Unless this is a case in which I'm caused to send you to a mental hospital under the Mental Health Act, I shall be certainly passing a sentence of life imprisonment on you. Once Campbell had been taken away to Ashworth, Mr Justice Sedley told the court, You may well be thinking that Lisa Potts deserves more formal recognition. I think so too. I shall be taking what steps I can to ensure that is considered. Detective Superintendent Sandy Craig, a spokesperson for West Midlands Police, echoed this and added his forces praise for Lisa's bravery. He said, I'm quite convinced that she saved us from one, two or even three murder inquiries on the day. No question about that whatsoever, is there? After leaving the court in tears following the verdict, Lisa herself said she was pleased that justice had been done, but said that she could never forgive Campbell for inflicting the horrific injuries upon the children. Having got the trial over with, Lisa returned to St Luke's after Christmas and attempted to regain some semblance of normality. But her mental and physical scars were still significant, completely unsurprising I can only imagine after being attacked by a maniac with a machete. How the fuck do you begin to come to terms with that? She continued to be in severe physical pain. She was having problems sleeping and of course the flashbacks continued often triggered by the most trivial of things, as we mentioned earlier. There were also ongoing events that constantly reminded her of the attack, countless interviews about her actions that day and her progress following it, award ceremonies, and of course, Campbell's eventual sentencing, which was looming up. It must have taken unbelievable courage for Lisa to even go back to St Luke's following the ordeal which by that time had had a complete security overhaul. It was closed for a week following the attack, during which time the school was now surrounded by a six-foot-high steel fence. Secure bolts and locks were replaced or fitted upon all the gates and doors, and all teachers and classroom assistants had been issued with panic alarms. Eventually, just three days after Lisa's 22nd birthday, on the 7th of March 1997, Horrit Campbell appeared at Teesside Crown Court before Mr Justice Sedley for sentencing. Presenting the report upon Campbell, psychiatrist Dr James Collins told the court that Campbell became increasingly isolated because of his mental illness, diagnosed as we said as severe paranoid schizophrenia, and this built up until, I quote, In the end, I think he felt he had to do something dramatic to make a statement about the way he saw himself being treated for so long by local people. Also from the psychiatric report, it was clear that Campbell hoped his actions would then help exercise a ghost which he felt had been dominating his life for a number of years. 
Dr. Collins said that Campbell was a great danger to the public and may indeed never recover from his illness. Mr. Justice Sedley said that it was accepted that Campbell's mental illness led to him carrying out what he described as these dreadful crimes. The judge said that anyone hearing the proceedings would realise Campbell was deranged and went on, In some ways, it is a relief to know it was a profoundly sick and deluded individual who committed these offences. To believe such an act could be carried out by a sane person would shake belief in humanity. He then ordered Horrock Campbell to be sent to a high-security hospital for an indefinite period. Once Campbell had been taken away, the judge once again praised Lisa Potts's courage, saying, Without doubt, Miss Potts saved the lives of some small children. It's now many months since the incident, and it seems surprising that Miss Potts has not yet been sufficiently recognised for bravery. It is beyond doubt that she deserves some public recognition. This finally was to occur on the 14th of June 1997, when Lisa was presented with the George Medal by Queen Elizabeth II for her bravery in July of the previous year. Today, it hangs in a display cabinet at Wolverhampton's Civic Centre after being loaned to the city by Lisa. Just a month after receiving this award, Lisa Potts left her post at St Luke's. She tried hard to move on from the events of the previous year, but the flashbacks and nightmares had continued, and backed by her family, she decided to see out that term before leaving. On the first anniversary of the attack, Lisa explained that she felt the sight of her now served as a chilling reminder to the children. She said, To them, I'm no longer the nursery nurse who looked after them and played with them. Now they only say, Miss Potts, where's the man? I think they're affected when they see me. Now it proper got me that did, that Lisa felt so strongly to give up doing something she loved so much out of such compassion, and yet it's completely understandable, isn't it? It really is. But this is one remarkable woman that you couldn't keep down, and following quitting as nursery nurse, Lisa turned her attentions to charity work. She worked with Oxfam in Vietnam, and helped build a children's home in Romania, before feeling that some good should come out of her own experiences, in 2001, Lisa even launched her own charity, Believe to Achieve. The charity supports children to believe in themselves, and raise their self-esteem through healthy living, and by developing a healthy mind. And although it initially targeted positive mental health, in children aged from 8 to 11 in Wolverhampton schools, has now expanded to work with children and young people between 5 and 25 years of age. Lisa also found some time somewhere to write three books, Behind the Smile, which has been a valuable source for the episode, Heroes for a Day, and a children's prayer book entitled Thank You God. Four years after the attack, the Criminal Injuries Compensation Appeals Panel awarded Lisa an initial sum of £49,000 for her injuries, which she was reportedly disappointed with. Now that's not a statement out of greed, but when the sum was broken down, it equated to just £20,000 for permanent, chronic, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, 
£28,000 for, for total loss of earnings, £750 for the partial permanent loss of grip in her left hand, and just £250 for the serious scarring that she'd been left with over her arms, her hands and back. Under the rules of the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority system at the time, victims could only claim for three injuries, regardless of how many they may have received. For the first injury, victims got 100%, for the second, 10%, and the third, just 5 Dave Prentice, the General Secretary of Unison, Lisa's union, said, We in Unison are very proud of Lisa. She was a low-paid nursery nurse who risked her life to protect children in her care, but she's been let down by a tariff system that is fatally flawed and cannot reflect the pain and suffering that she's gone through. I don't think that this level of compensation is adequate or fair, particularly when you compare it with the £100,000 libel damages awarded to chef Marco Pierre White only a few weeks ago over accusations that he used real ink instead of squid ink in his cooking, nor when you compare it with the £150,000 damages awarded to Kevin Keegan over claims of organised betting sessions. Surely we've got our priorities wrong here. Completely absolute bollocks indeed, that wrong isn't it? I wouldn't give multi-millionaire footballer Ken Keegan bugger all except a military haircut to get rid of that stupid perm. On the 10th of November 2001, following an appeal, the amount of compensation Lisa received was increased to £68,300. The children injured by Campbell, Rena, Ahmed and Francesca, were initially awarded just £750 each for their injuries, but this was later increased to £20,000 each for Rina and Ahmed, and an increased sum from an initial £8,000 to £23,625 for Francesca, in light of the counselling and cosmetic surgery she had required over the years. Although each of the victims recovered from their injuries, the scars still remained for them. Rena Chopra was interviewed at the age of 12 in 2004 and described how she'd been left with a permanent 5-inch scar on her face following Campbell's attack, but has subsequently not given any further interviews. Ahmed had been left with scarring and epilepsy, and by the age of 10 had still not regained the full use of his right arm. He attended a different nursery for a short time, but then returned to St. Luke's where teachers were aware of what had happened to him. Although he could of course not forget the events, they didn't hold him back and he worked his way through schooling, doing well and eventually gaining a master's degree in electrical engineering. Interviewed about the 20 year anniversary of the attack in 2016, he said that his parents were cautious not to wrap him in cotton wool after the attack and helped him to live a normal life. Although he claimed to suffer migraines and had been left with scars on his head and arm, Ahmed said, I don't think there were any lasting effects on me. I don't know if it's linked, but I'm left-handed. It was my right arm that was injured. When I read about it, it's strange. It's like it didn't happen. The main thing I remember is the aftermath. My parents were always being interviewed. Cameras were constantly in my house. I told some of my friends at university after our last exam, I was like, beat that. They couldn't believe it. 
Ahmed today wears his hair longer to hide the scars to his head and said further that he tries to avoid questions about the incident which is always at the back of his mind. In the interview, Ahmed stated that he doesn't have any feelings of ill will towards Campbell and was angered by the newspaper reports from the time that showed Campbell's face under the headline Face of Evil. Ahmed stated, He was not evil, he was ill and was not fully aware of what he was doing. Remarkable young man that, isn't it? Francesca Quintine, who was only four at the time of the attack, endured months of reconstructive and plastic surgery as a result of Campbell's machete slashing her face, including the insertion of two metal plates to hold her jaw together. Much of the incident is gone from her mind, thankfully putting an end to the flashbacks and nightmares after the attack. For 18 years she could not forgive Campbell at all, but today, after working in mental health with children and adolescents, Francesca says it's helped her understand what led Campbell to launch his attack. In a 2016 interview, she said, It's given me such an insight into why people do these kind of things. I can't fully understand it, but I can reason with him. It's helped me forgive him. She went on to describe how living with Campbell's actions had been through adolescence. When I was younger, people used to stare at me a lot and ask what had happened but it's faded a lot now I'm older. I used to hide it, but the older I'm getting, I don't notice it so much. I don't remember anything from the time, it's like I've deleted it. But I've got a big box of news clippings at home, and when I read them, I can't believe it happened. As a teenager, I ignored the whole situation and didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't speak about it at all. I tried to repress it as much as I could until it physically got to me. I went to talk to Lisa about how I felt last year because I was really struggling. I was in such a dark place after suppressing my feelings for so long. People tell you that they know how you feel, but they don't. The only person who did was Lisa because she knows exactly what went on. She had lived it. We have a connection like a sister's bond. And thankfully, I now feel free of the cloud that hung over me for so long. Now, as you can probably gather from Francesca's words, she and Lisa Potts have remained in touch since the attack and have become extremely close. Francesca was even one of Lisa's bridesmaids at her wedding to police officer Dave Webb in 2002. 24 years on, and today a married mother of two boys, Jude and Alfie, Lisa feels differently about the crime that shocked the nation having replayed the events of the 8th of July 1996 in her mind countless times. In a recent interview, she said, It only lasted eight minutes, but it changed the course of my life forever. From the moment it happened, my life took a different path. One full of media opportunities, dinners and awards. It was crazy. I used to joke that I was a professional machete heroine. I was so young and I felt like public property. For five years, I felt like I was on a merry-go-round. Journalists would camp outside my house. I felt like a goldfish. We've heard of her heroics. No other word can sum up her actions that day. And understandably, she was very firmly in the public eye. In 1997, she even received the George Medal for Bravery from the Queen, the second highest accolade that can be awarded. 
But while Lisa described this as a great honour at the time, she says she hid a lot of her true feelings. She went on, I felt a lot of guilt. Here I was, getting all these awards after such a horrific experience. There were times when I just wanted to run away from it all. Lisa claimed that it was becoming a mother herself that finally made her come to terms with the gravity of her actions, saying, Eight years later when I had Alfie, I started to realise the extent of what happened that day, and I was so upset when he first went to school. Would it happen to him? All these fears came up. We've always been really open with the children about what happened, right from the start. Alfie used to call my arm, my hurty. I didn't want to frighten them about going to school. By knowing what happened, they understand life is not always easy. Not just about what happened to me, but Horat Campbell too. On the subject of Horat Campbell, Lisa said, remarkably, I've forgiven him now for what he did. I had to move on. I never had any hate, even in my darkest moments, when I had to relearn everything. I wasn't angry at him. As time went on, I felt sorry for him. I've learned a lot about mental health over the years, and I feel sad that he went unnoticed in the community and didn't get help or treatment. Having trained as a nurse, Lisa Potts today works as a health visitor, combining her skills as a nursery nurse and her extraordinary life experience to help families. She's still co-chair of Believe to Achieve, which is today approaching its 20th anniversary, and which on the 20th anniversary of the attack in 2016, Lisa said of it, I thought we'd only be going for about three years, but it's been 15 now, and we're helping children in Dudley schools now. It's great to think that from such a terrible event, something so positive happened. It's nice that I can use what happened in a positive way, it's part of my life experience. It's who I am. So many things come out of what happened, but the biggest thing was survival. Nobody died that day. When you think about Dunblane, we were so lucky. What an amazing woman. I find people like Lisa so inspirational. I really, really do. Horat Campbell, meanwhile, remains to this day in a high-security hospital where he is never likely to be released from. Both Villiers House, the block of flats where Campbell had lived, and St Luke's Infant School buildings, the scene of the horror that we've heard here, are now both long gone, having been demolished in 2006 and 2009 respectively. Today, more modernised apartment blocks stand on the former site of the block that Campbell called home, whereas a new school building was built on the existing site of the former infant school on Park Street South. On Tuesday the 5th of November 2019, the Department for Education and Schools published new guidance regarding security in schools, stating that no school can afford to ignore the potential threat and impact of security issues. In the consultation that led to the guidance, Schools were divided on the issue of how prescriptive they wanted advice from the government to be. However, for those that wished it, there is available an emergency planning checklist, a risk assessment, a bomb alert template, a lockdown template, and even a terrorist response template. With children now having lockdown drills in schools as routinely as they do fire drills, 
you can only hope that these things are never needed. And whilst it's impossible to say whether this would have made any difference to the attack on the playground at St. Luke's, in 1996, back then, the Department for Education and Schools guidance stated, Schools are still one of the safest places to be. Until it was proven that they weren't in eight minutes of horror on a July afternoon. Horrendous case as ever this one on the show, isn't it? Anything that involves children or the elderly especially gets to me, and even though this doesn't denote a murder as is the norm here on the show, seven attempted murders more than makes up for it, doesn't it? The carnage that day, I mean, you don't even want to imagine it, do you? Children with their ears sliced off and faces opened, and a young woman almost hacked into pieces. Nothing short of a pure miracle that nobody was killed that day. And that miracle surely is Lisa Potts. I know I may have gushed a bit here, but isn't she remarkable or what? Horrid Campbell, however, I mean, how do you feel about such a person? On the one hand, his actions are so abhorrent that the natural reaction is to call him a monster and want to ensure that he never sees the light of day again based on his crimes alone. But then you have to think, this guy was seriously, seriously mentally ill. Paranoid schizophrenic, it transpired, who had never come to the attention of the local health authority, thus was not receiving any treatment for it, and who worsened to the point where he truly believed that he had to strike back against the devils who tormented him. While sympathy for Lisa and Ahmed and Francesca and everybody affected that day by Campbell is natural, of course it is, is it easier to just condemn Campbell completely for his actions? Or is there a small part of you that maybe has a degree of sympathy for him too? It's easy to say after the event, oh bloody nutter, he shouldn't have been out and all that, if someone's a loner and they either don't recognise they're becoming ill or try to brush it off, taking no steps to get help at all, then how on earth, unless they do something to bring themselves to the attention of health services, can you predict something like that? Disturbing as the act was, and don't get me wrong, I'm not excusing it at all because it was pure carnage, no other word will suffice. As we've said before on the show, mental illness can creep up on anybody, can't it? Is it best to take a leaf out of Lisa or Ahmed's books and try to understand Campbell and his condition and consider it an act of illness rather than an act of evil? What do you guys think? You can hear your thoughts and views in the episode thread on the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group as ever or through any of the show's social media or contact details which myself and Julia, I'm sure, will look forward to learning and discussing. As I said at the onset of the episode, this is a case I'd wanted to cover on the show for a long time and Julia seems to have some sort of way of reading my mind when it comes to cases because we were discussing recently whilst in touch about this episode and she hits me with a case idea for the next one that she's interested in doing that I was only considering myself at the exact same time she mentioned. Meant to be that is, isn't it? And I look forward to bringing it to you guys at a later date. My utmost thanks to Julia for her work in writing and researching this week's episode, which I hope you found as interesting a one as I did when I received it and read her account. I'm back in the author chair myself for the next episode, 
in which we begin this series' multi-episode arc, and I hope that it's one you guys can join me for. All back catalogue of episodes of the show are still available of course, if you've missed any and want to hear more, and if you've caught up with those but still wish to hear even more from the show, then there are a whole host of full-length bonus episodes available should you wish to support the show on Patreon. I'll wrap up here now, so all that remains is for me to say, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, thanking you guys for joining myself and Julia, of course, for the episode. I wish you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care, folks, and goodbye for now.